Well, thank you, Chase Oaks. It's so cool to be back here with you. Uh, this, this feels like our church home in America. Um, as Jeff said, my wife Rochelle and I were here before we even had kids 28 years ago. And this was our church home. Uh, I was on staff here, had the privilege of serving alongside Jeff and Jack and a whole bunch of the, the staff that look a little bit greyer like me these days. But this is home for us when we come back to Dallas. And so it's very special to be back. It's been seven years since we were here. COVID got in the way of, an, of a plan to be back. Um, but gee, it's special to be back with uh, who we consider to be family. So it's awesome to be with you. I was a, uh, a senior in high school. And I was home from school, sick one day, uh, when a package arrived addressed to my mother. She was working, she ran the office of an elementary school, but when she came home uh, that afternoon, I said, oh, there's a package on the kitchen counter for you. And uh, she went, and on the back, there was the address of my dad's parents, my grandparents, her parents-in-law. They'd sent this package because it was a couple of days away from her birthday. And so she started to make a bit of a joke with me. Maybe she'd open it early, have an early birthday present. And I kind of joined in and said, no, you're not allowed to do that. And I grabbed it out of her hands and I ran downstairs in our house. And we had, uh, like many of you may have, if you've got a a double uh, story house, a big storage cupboard under the stairs. And I ran in there and and I hid the parcel where she couldn't find it. And then we promptly forgot about it until her birthday. And we're, we've enjoyed her birthday, we've had celebrations, and that evening, Grandma and Granddad call on the phone to wish my mum a happy birthday. And they ask her, did you like the present? And all of a sudden, she remembered this parcel that I'd gone and hid. And she glared at me, and she's on the phone saying, oh, it was so lovely, thank you for giving me that. And she gets off the phone, and she's like, Bradley, you know, which means I'm in trouble. Where's the present? Oh, sorry. And I ran back down the stairs, under the cupboard, under the stairs, and hunted around. And I could not find that jolly present. And I went up and said, I can't find it. And my dad kind of made this comment under his breath about teenagers. And he went downstairs and hunted around in the the cupboard. He couldn't find it. And he comes upstairs and says, I don't know what he's done. And so mum sighs and makes a comment about the way men look for things. And she goes downstairs. Well, even she couldn't find it. Twelve years later, my parents sell that home and clear everything out, including that cupboard under the stairs. And they still couldn't find the present. I think I have the spiritual gift of hiding things. (laughs) To this day, we do not know what grandma and granddad gave my mother for her birthday that day. And when I get to heaven, the first thing I'm going to do is hunt down my grandma and granddad and say, what on earth did you give mum for that present that year? Because we have no idea. I wonder, though, if you can relate to that idea of searching hard for something valuable that you have lost. You don't know where it is. Maybe it was something precious to you like an engagement or a wedding ring. Maybe it was your wallet or your credit card that went missing and you have had to frantically search the house trying to find it. Maybe you were looking for your car keys half an hour ago and didn't know where they were. But that idea of searching for something until you can find it, if you can, 
is at the heart of three of the most amazing stories that Jesus told during his ministry. We call them parables, which means they were made up stories. They weren't about actually anyone in particular. They were fictional, but they had a spiritual point that Jesus was getting across. And three of the most powerful stories that Jesus ever told are found in the Gospel of Luke, which is one of the four biographies of Jesus in the New Testament, what we call Gospels. And in Luke 15, Jesus tells these three amazing stories. He begins with a story about a shepherd who loses a sheep. And then he tells a story about a woman who loses a coin. And then he tells a story about a dad who loses one of his sons who wanders away. And you'll notice, if you just go back to the previous slide on the screen there, you'll notice the ratios change, the value goes up in each story. So the shepherd has a hundred sheep and loses one, so that's a value of one percent. But the woman only has ten coins and loses one, so suddenly it's now ten percent. And the father only has two boys. He's lost fifty percent of his family. And so what Jesus is doing as he tells each of these stories is he's ramping up the the tension of what's going on. And it's that third story about these lost sons of a father that I want to share with you uh, today. So Jesus begins this way in Luke 15. He continues, because we're jumping into the third story now. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. And so he divided his property between them. As Jesus was telling this story to a Near Eastern audience, they would have gasped twice in these two comments. The first time they would have gasped is when uh, this young son comes to his father and says, Dad, give me my share of the inheritance now. Now, back in those days as now, you don't get the inheritance until the parents die. That's the same here as New Zealand, eh? Yeah. So what is he doing? He's coming to his dad and saying, The money that I'm going to get from you when you die is more important to me than you. I wish you were dead so I could get the money now. And in an honour-shame culture, which is where Jesus is, this was incredibly disrespectful. And the audience would have been shocked at the audacity of this young punk who comes and asks his dad for something like that. And then as Jesus tells the story, they would have gasped a second time. Because the way that Jesus tells the story, the father gives him what he asks. The father goes ahead and calls up the lawyer and divides up the estate between his two boys. The oldest son would get a double portion. That's how it worked in this patriarchal world. I'm a younger son. I don't like that. And I'm glad that doesn't work anymore. But he would have divided it into these two parts, two thirds for the older boy, one third for the younger. And he would have handed all of that over to his young son. And so Jesus then carries on in the next verses. Not long after that, he says, the youngest son got together all he had and set off for a distant country and there he squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything though, there was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. And he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. 
Jesus is a brilliant storyteller here. So he sets up the story magnificently. The father's divided up the estate, given the smaller share to his younger son, and the younger son gathers everything together. You know what that means? He sold the family land. Now this was land that had been in their family for generations, had been passed down from one generation to another. And it's like this young boy, this young man, he spits on the graves of all his ancestors because he sells the family land for as much cash as he can get. And then Jesus said, he takes off to a far country. Now, this is a Jewish culture. So if they've gone anywhere outside the land of Israel, he's gone to Gentile country. So he takes off to Gentile country where they don't follow the God of his ancestors. And there Jesus says he squanders all of the money. And just as his bank balance runs down to zero, just as his credit card starts chalking up because he didn't have the chance to hear Jeff in the last couple of weeks talk about how to handle your money properly, well, at that moment, a famine hits the land. It's a recession. The economy, the bottom falls out. Businesses start to close. Banks foreclose on mortgages. And this young Jewish kid is stuffed. He's got no money. He's got no options. He tries to get a job. And this is where Jesus' humor comes in. The only job this good Jewish boy can get is what? A pig farmer. This kid's never even touched bacon in his life. And now he's looking after a herd of pigs. And the wages are so pitiful. He is so hungry. Jesus describes him holding the slop bucket in his hand, feeding the pigs and wondering if he might be able to sneak a little bit for himself. He has hit absolute rock bottom. And so Jesus then continues. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have got food to spare? Here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say this to him. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. He's in the pig pen with the slop bucket. And he suddenly has this moment where he goes, this is ridiculous. What am I doing? The servants back at home, which means they were a pretty wealthy family, by the way. The servants at home have got enough Chick-fil-A to eat. They've got so much, they're sweet. Here I am looking into this jolly slop bucket. This is hopeless. I need to go home and sort it out with my dad. Now, if you've never heard this story before, if you've come into church for the first time or you're not familiar with the stories of Jesus, then you're going to be fine at this point. But I want to suggest if you are familiar with this story, if you've heard this before, this is the point where we misread the story. Because the way most of us understand this story is that at this moment the son repents and he decides to go home and confess his sins to his father. This is a beautiful story about a young man who realizes he made a mess of life and he repents of his sin and he goes home. And can I just suggest to you, I think we're misreading the story if that's how we're reading it. Because I don't think that's what's going on here at all. A few years ago, I came across a New Testament scholar by the name of Dr. Kenneth Bailey. He's an American, but he's lived almost all of his life in the Middle East. And so he brings an understanding to some of the background of these kinds of stories and the culture behind it 
that many of us in the West, whether America, England, New Zealand, wherever we're from, we sometimes miss the nuances of these stories. And what Kenneth Bailey writes is this. The son is going to solve his own problem. Hoping to soften his father's heart, the prodigal plans to offer his solution to his problem. He will work as a paid craftsman and be able to save money. And after the lost money is recovered, then he can discuss reconciliation. So here's the plan he comes up with. He's going to go home. He's going to say, Dad, I've completely blown this. I've made a complete mess. I realize that. Would you hire me as a servant? Let me live with the other servants out in the outhouse somewhere out the back of the property. Give me a little bit of that Chick-fil-A so I can live. And would you pay me? And I will save that whole wage until I have saved up enough to pay you back for all of the money I've lost. And then maybe we can talk about being a family again. And Jesus is setting up this story brilliantly. And let me tell you why. Because every religion in the world is built on this principle. If you want to have a relationship with God, if you've made a bit of a mess of your life or a complete mess of life and you want to have a relationship with God, if you'd like to be forgiven and accepted and welcomed by the Almighty, here's what you need to do. You need to work jolly hard. And you need to clean your life up. And you need to find a way to pay back and fix up the mess that you have made of your life. And what Jesus is doing here is he's setting up a contrast between the way that man-made religions work versus this incredible message that he has come to share, which is called grace. See, religion is basically spelt D-O. It is all about what you do. To make it right with God. It's all about you working hard. It's all about you earning God's love. It's all about you ticking off the boxes to make God happy. That's what this young kid wants to do. He wants to go back to his father and earn his way back into his father's heart. But grace, this incredible message that Jesus brings in his ministry, is spelt D-O-N-E. Because a relationship with God, the way Jesus describes it and the way Jesus offers, is not based on what you and I do, it's based on what Jesus has done. And the radical message of Jesus was that we can be loved and accepted and welcomed and forgiven by an incredibly holy God. Not because we've earned it or deserve it, but because Jesus has earned it and deserve it. And if we choose to put our faith in him, then we get accepted and loved and forgiven totally by grace. And that's what this kid has never understood. This is not a story of a son repenting. What we're about to see is it's a story of a father who finds his boy. See, remember, this is one of three stories. A lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost son. In the first story, the sheep has wandered away into the wilderness. And in the first story, the sheep doesn't go, meh, this is stupid. I'm going to walk back home. No. In the story, the shepherd goes out and he finds the sheep. In the second story, where a coin is lost, the coin doesn't suddenly go, man, this is ridiculous. I'm stuck here in the corner of this house. And if I don't do something, I'm going to be stuck here for 2,000 years until an archaeologist discovers me. And so it rolls out into the middle of the room. No, no, no. 
The shepherd goes and searches for the sheep. The woman goes and searches for the coin. And what we're about to see is the father is going to go and search for that boy. Here's the way Jesus describes it in verse 20. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son and he threw his arms around him and he kissed him. Jesus here piles the verbs up in this little verse. Do you notice that? This father sees and he's filled and he runs and he hugs and he kisses and his son hasn't said a word yet. The father just lavishes him with love. He's got no idea if the son's, what he's going to say. He's got no idea of what the the son has planned. He hasn't heard one word yet. He's yet to hear the word sorry because he doesn't even give, give his kid a chance to say it. He just runs to him and he puts his arms around him and he hugs him. See, what's been going on is that the father every day has been searching for his boy. Now, he can't track his son like the shepherd could track the sheep and know which direction it went. The father in the story has no idea where'd the son go? Did he head north, south, east, west? Which direction? The father can't just take off and go east because what if the son went west? So the picture is of this father every day standing on the highest point of the family land. And he is gazing out at the horizon at every point in the campus every day. He's just looking to see if he can catch a glimpse of his son anywhere on the horizon. And the reason he is doing that is because he needs to get to his son before his village. See, Dr. Kenneth Paley says what happens even now today in the Middle East is in this honour-shame society, a village where a father or parents have been deeply shamed by a child, the village will protect that family from being hurt anymore by that kid. And they'll perform a ceremony called a ketsatsa. And they will get, when they see a glimpse of a wayward child coming home who has shamed the family, they will get an old pot or an urn that's cracked and useless and they'll fill it with rubbish. They'll grab stuff from around the village. They'll throw in old pottery pieces and burnt food and whatever rubbish is around. And then the whole village will go out and they will line up right across the roadway to prevent this wayward son getting to the family home. And they will stand there and they will say, you are not coming home. We will not allow you to inflict any more humiliation on your family. We are stepping in to protect them. You are now Kitsatsa, and they will throw this urn or this pot onto the ground where it shatters and all the rubbish spills out, and they will say, that is what you are. You are rubbish. Now turn and go. And what's going on in the story, folks, is that the father, day after day after day, is searching the horizon to catch a glimpse of his son. Because if he can find his boy, and if he can get to his boy before the villagers do, if he can be reconciled to his son before they can enact that ceremony, then everyone has to be reconciled to him. Everyone has to welcome him home, and he will be loved and accepted again. And so day after day after day, this father in the story who is a picture of God is looking for his son until the day comes where he sees him coming on the horizon. 
And the father in Jesus' story does what no Middle Eastern patriarch would ever, ever do. He picks up his robes and his hands and he runs. Because he is going to find his son before the village has a chance to enact Ketzatza. You see, the, the rabbis, the other teachers in Jesus' day, they believed that the, a holy God would welcome sinful people back into a relationship. But they had to repent. They had to sort their lives out. They had to confess their sin to everyone. They had to make up for everything they'd messed up and done wrong. And they had to tick all the boxes and do all the stuff in order to be acceptable to God. And Jesus comes in and says, no, that's not what my father's like. My father is like a shepherd who goes looking for this stupid sheep that's wandered off again. He's like this woman who will sweep the entire dark house until she finds that valuable coin. And he is like a dad who stands on a hill and looks for his son day after day after day because he loves his boy so much. That's grace. It's not about what we do. It's about what Jesus has done. And the point of the story, folks, is simply this. The God of grace goes looking for the lost. The God of grace goes looking for the lost. God's not hanging back, waiting for for sinful people to clean their lives up and, and fix up the mess we've made. God comes looking for us. He comes running for us. He longs to put his arms around us and welcome us home. Because that's the kind of God he is. He's a God of grace. And so the story ends this way. Verse 21. The son says to his father, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. He starts into his speech, but he only gets halfway. And the father interrupts him. He says to the servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger. Put sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf, which is actually a literal trans- literally in the original language. It's a New Zealand lamb, just saying that. Bring the New Zealand lamb and kill it. Because it's outstanding. And let's have a feast and let's celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and he came wandering home. No, no, no. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. See, it's a beautiful story. Not of a son who repents. He wants to earn his way back into the father's love. It's a story of a father who finds his son and welcomes him back without him ever cleaning up his life. It's a story of grace. And this is where most people finish the story and celebrate what an amazing God of grace he is and we sing a final song and we go home. But there's actually one more part to the story. In Luke chapter 15 where this is found, there's eight more verses. Because Jesus now brings in a twist to the story. The sheep has been found, the coin has been found, the son has been found. And then we find there's another son. Jesus continues. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of his servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother's come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. And the older brother 
became angry and he refused to go into the party. So his father went out and he pleaded with him. For a second time in the story now, this father has been publicly shamed by one of his boys. The first time it was the youngest son taking off to a faraway land. Now the second time it's an older son who refuses to join the party, to join the family celebration. Now this is again an honour-shame culture. The youngest son comes back from the fields, dusty, grimy, needing a shower. And he hears the party going on. He calls one of the servants, what's going on? The servant tells him and he's so mad, he's going, I'm not going in there. And the servant goes up to some of the other servants and says, the brother's home and he's ticked off. Ticked off, that translates into Texan. Yeah, he's ticked off. He's not coming in. And the servants tell some of the other servants and some of the guests here. And the whispers slowly filter through the courtyard until all of the guests have heard the news. The older brother's outside and he is so angry with his dad. He's not coming in. And for the second time in the story, the father is humiliated by his other son. Even though that boy never left home. And what does the father do? For a second time, He humbles himself, he picks himself up from the seat of honour in the banquet and in the sight of everyone in the room he walks out to go and find his other boy. And he pleads with him to come in. And through the words, the mouth of Jesus, here's what the older boy says. He answers his father, look, all of these years I have been slaving for you and I have never disobeyed your orders. You never gave me even a young goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. And then when this son of yours, notice he's not even my brother, when the son of yours who squandered your property with prostitutes, suddenly the story's expanding massively, when he comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. Notice very carefully, what this older son is saying. The older son believes that his relationship with his father is based on exactly the same thing the youngest son did. It's spelled D-O. Only the older boy thinks he's ticked every box. Dad, you now owe me. I've worked hard. I've obeyed. I never left. I've ticked off all the boxes. So therefore you should love me because I'm awesome. And he's angry at his father. Because his father is not giving him the respect he feels he deserves. Both boys here are lost. Because both of them believe that the way they relate to their father is through religion. It's through earning. It's through working hard. The younger son was lost in his rebelliousness. The older son is lost in his religion. The older son ran far away and is separated from his father through his bad deeds. The older boy never runs. But he's actually separated from the father through his pride in his good deeds. And these two boys, they represent all of us. The rebellious and the religious. And in the story, the God of grace goes looking for them both. And so the father says to the son in verse 31, my son, you're always with me. Everything I have is now yours. 
But we've got to celebrate and be glad. This brother of yours was dead and is alive again and he was lost and now he's found. And how does the older boy respond? We don't know. Jesus leaves the story there. Why? Well, if you go back to the beginning of the chapter, Jesus is teaching, he's telling these stories to this crowd around him. And crowded around him are all of these people who are like younger sons and younger daughters. Luke tells us it's sinners, it's prostitutes, it's tax collectors, it's the scum of the earth. It's people who have no business ever coming near any religious teacher or rabbi like Jesus. And they are hovering around him and he tells these stories about a God who pursues sheep and coins and wayward sons. It's younger sons and daughters. And then on the outskirts of the crowd, standing there, arms crossed with a scowl on their face, are a bunch of the other teachers and rabbis. They hate Jesus and they hate his message. And they're standing there listening to these stories. And as Jesus gets to the end, he throws this little twist in for them. Because if all of these sinful people have made a mess of their lives, if they're younger sons and younger daughters, those religious leaders standing on the edge of the crowd, they're older sons. And they're full of pride about their goodness and how wonderful they are and how, what a blessing they are to God. And what Jesus is wanting them to understand is it doesn't matter whether you've made a complete mess of your life or you're the most perfect person that's ever lived. You will never have a relationship with God based on what you do. It is totally and utterly based on what Jesus has done for us. He lived the perfect life none of us can ever live. He died on the cross to pay the penalty of our sins. And he rose again to open up a relationship with God and defeat sin and death and hell forever and ever. The God of grace comes looking for the lost, both the rebellious and the religious. And that's what the story is all about. Many years ago, Rochelle and I were visiting a little house church that our church in New Zealand and Auckland had planted in a town a few hours drive away. The leaders of it were some of the most important, the key leaders from our church and they'd moved back to their hometown and they started just this little house church meeting in their home, about 20 people sitting around in the living room. And we went down one weekend to spend the weekend with them and encourage them. And I, I shared this story, this exact message you're hearing tonight. And as I shared it, one of their daughters, they're like family to us, so she's like my niece. She's sitting off to the side. She's a younger daughter. She walked away from the faith she'd been raised in. She'd made some silly decisions. She'd made a pretty big mess of her life. But she's sitting in this little house church that day. And she's listening to the story. And as we come to the end and I pray and we sing a couple more songs with a guitar. And some of them get up to make some lunch at the end of this little service in this little home. She kind of shuffles along. She's sitting on the living room floor and so am I. That's where I was preaching from. And she shuffles kind of over to me until she's sitting next to me. And she says, Brad, I want to do it. And I pretend I don't know what she means. I say, what do you mean you want to do it? She says, I want to come back to Jesus. 
I put my arm around this precious young woman who's just very special to us. And I prayed with her. And I helped her come back to Jesus. And as I look back on that moment, kind of almost standing outside of it, I have this beautiful picture in this home, in this little town in New Zealand, of this young woman and I just sitting together on the carpet. Because she represents every younger son and daughter who's messed up their lives and wandered away and been lost in their rebelliousness, and God has found them. But sitting next to her on the carpet is an older son who is completely lost in his religion and his goodness and his pride. That was me. See, I was raised in a Christian family, came to faith in Jesus as a kid. But somehow I missed the message of grace. And I thought my relationship with God was completely dependent on my good works and working hard. So I was the model child. I never rebelled. I never walked away from church. I learned all the memory verses. I was a Sunday school teacher's dream. And I was so proud of myself and my big checklist that I would check off. Boy, God was lucky to have me. Until the day I came face to face with this radical message of grace. And what I realized is it doesn't matter how rebellious you are or how religious you are. It doesn't matter what a mess you've made of your life or you think you've lived a brilliant life. All of us are lost sons and daughters. And all of us need to be found by the God of grace. So as we finish today, I want to leave you with two profound statements that I want you to hear. Number one is this. You are never bad enough. That you're outside of the grace of God. Please don't ever believe that you are so bad that you cannot be warmly accepted and loved by this God of grace because that simply isn't true. And maybe you're in church for the very first time. Maybe you're watching online and you're checking all this thing out and you're wondering how this even works. The wonderful news of the Bible is it doesn't matter what you've done in your life. God's looking for you and Jesus wants to grab you and welcome you into his family. And there is nothing that you could have done in your life that would be bad enough to stop that happening. Jesus, when he died on the cross for our sins, he died for it all. And maybe some of you, there might be some of you, you've been a Jesus follower for years, and yet you've got this nagging doubt, all the silly things you did in life, whether or not it's really forgiven, really taken care of, whether God really loves you, He does. Because grace is spelt D-O-N-E. You've never done anything bad enough. You're outside of his grace. If you want to be found. The other point is this. You are never good enough that you do not desperately need his grace. And if you're an older son or an older daughter like me, we need to lay down our checklists and our spiritual resumes where we think We've got it all together. We need to lay those down and realize, no, we are accepted and loved and welcomed totally by what Jesus has done as well. Because that's the point of the story. The God of grace goes looking for the lost, both the rebellious and the religious. So as we finish today, I want to pray for us. 
that we would grasp this maybe in a way we never have before. But before I pray, I want to invite you to pray. Just take a moment to to talk with God. And if this is all new for you to know what prayer is, it's simply talking to God. You can just think the thoughts and he hears you. And maybe you want to come to him today and say, I've always felt this nagging doubt that I've been too bad. And I embrace your grace today. Or you may want to say, God, man, I've been proud. Help me to lay that down and realize it's all, it's all by your grace alone. Because the God of grace goes looking for the lost. So Jesus, we want to say thanks for this story of a father who picks up his robes and comes running, who humbles himself to save wayward sons and daughters. And whether we're younger sons and daughters and have made a mess of life, whether we're older sons and daughters and have been really good, it actually doesn't matter. We all need your grace. And we bow in this moment and say, thank you for it, that you welcome us, accept us, forgive us forever when we say thank you to this gift you give us. In your name. Amen.